Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is Tuesday, April 19th. Derek Van Riper here with Al Melchior. It is Prospect Tuesday, as we call it on the show. It kind of needs a new name. Not a lot of alliteration there. Maybe it'd be nice to have something uh, a little more bouncy, something that rolls off the tongue even more. We'll work on that. But the goal of this episode each and every week is to dig into prospect-related news, recent debuts. Uh, We'll analyze rookie performances from a lot of different angles throughout the year. We'll talk about players that are several years away. We can talk keeper and dynasty league strategy. Anything's kind of fair game, but we're just thinking more about the long term or at least younger players in general as we get together for this pod each and every Tuesday. And since we last spoke, we saw several starting pitcher debuts. A few of those pitchers have actually gone twice since we last spoke. Uh, so I want to start, Al, with the debut of Mackenzie Gore. And we know he's going to get one more turn at least before the Padres get healthy in the rotation and possibly consider sending him back down or shifting roles or going to a six-man rotation. The debut came Friday night at Petco, five and a third innings, two earned runs, three hits, three Ks, two walks. I was looking at the pitch mix, and this is where I was the most surprised. A 95.7 mile per hour fastball based on the stack cast numbers, good good velo on the fastball, but 72.6% usage. He has four pitches. He threw a slider, he threw a curveball, he threw a change. I thought I would see a more balanced McKenzie Gore, and I guess I, I don't want to take a debut and read too much into pitch mixes there, because a lot of times I think when you're talking about someone, especially... With the hype that Gore has and with the two-year struggles that Gore went through, establishing command and being consistent was probably the number one priority for him as they try to really get him back on track. So this to me is a a victory. This is a step in the right direction for Mackenzie Gore following a fantastic spring. And the more we get to see him, the more I'm convinced he will have at least consistent deep league appeal to us in fantasy leagues this year yeah and i'm still hopeful that there will be more than just the the deep league appeal there uh yeah i I agree that against atlanta that that was a a nice performance from him you could really expect anything uh along the gamut in a in a debut even against a lesser team so that was really encouraging to see and i also i agree with you in terms of the your perspective on the fastball heavy pitch mix. And just to contrast that, in fact, somebody from Atlanta's rotation, Kyle Wright, you and I, I think we both talked uh, on it in one or two episodes about uh, his heavy use of the curveball and also a very effective curveball in his season debut came out in his second start was also very effective, but used the curveball a lot less. So I think we can give them and their, their pitching uh, coaches credit for maybe adjusting to the opposition. Or like you say, the case of Gore, maybe just the mission there was just, to establish command, and, and then you can take steps forward from there. And if you didn't get a chance to watch it, one of the things I, I like to do, I like to look at the baseball savant heat maps just to see where a pitcher was trying to locate each of his offerings. And with Gore, you see a few nice little red splotches on the the edges of the zone inside to, to righties and inside to lefties both had that working. But then there's this tight red splotch kind of in the middle, middle part of the zone. I've seen that from Hunter Green early on too. And the key difference here is that at 95-7, you're going to get into a lot of trouble living in the middle middle part of the zone. With Hunter Green, four ticks faster, you can get away with it a little bit more often. So uh, I'm really curious to just see how that takes shape for Gore. And I think we're going to see 
fewer fastballs going forward as well, given the circumstances. But uh, he did grade out reasonably well in Eno Saris's pitching plus model, too. I saw a stuff number just over 100. 100 is average, just as a, a frame of reference, 101.6. Location plus was a tick below average at 92.1. What we've seen looking at this model over the last couple of years since Eno put it together is that pitchers in their debuts tend to run a bit lower than they end up running once they've settled in at the big league level. Not a big surprise, given nerves and all the factors that we've talked about. Um, and that was also true of Nick Lodolo, who has now made two starts. Just made another one on Monday night against the Padres. Eight strikeouts, did give up three earned runs over five innings, scattered six hits, only walked two through 90 pitches, 16 swings and misses, and only two hard-hit balls allowed. I think there's a couple things to take away here. One, Nick Lodolo does have legitimate swing-and-miss kind of stuff. But two, the Padres are a lineup to stream against right now. Without Fernando Tatis Jr., this is a team that is not particularly strong up and down the lineup. You know, Manny Machado is is the, the clear hitter to fear, and there's a few interesting secondary bats there. Luke Voigt really hasn't gotten going yet. Jake Cronenworth's been pretty quiet. Trent Grisham's been in a slump. But the bottom half of that lineup especially is one that you don't really worry about at all. And looking at the usage for Lodolo, he throws a sinker. He threw it about half the time in that outing. 94.4 was the velo on there. It's got a change, got a curveball. All three of those pitches had a called strike and whiff rate above 30% on Monday, which I know makes our friends over at the pitcher list very happy. <laughs> As well it should. I mean, anything over 30% is really good. And in addition to the swing and misses and the, the freezes, you, you mentioned the sinker for Lodolo. And uh, getting uh, you know getting ground balls as well uh, with that pitch. So there's there's a lot to like there, and uh, definitely uh, has redraft appeal beyond uh, obviously uh, you know dynasty leagues. I don't think you can you haven't been able to get him there for a long long time. But uh, in redraft leagues, I think he's pretty much a must add. I keep wondering as we look at this Reds rotation. You know, once once they're completely healthy. How is it going to work? I, I'm not I'm not really sweating it in the sense that I think by making some of the moves that they have made going back to the beginning of this offseason, it seems fairly clear to me that they intend to prioritize Green and Lodolo's development and making them like a bigger part of their rotation, even if there are some innings workload concerns that we run into later in the year. I don't think we're going to see those guys have their workloads messed with all that much in the first half based on what they've done in their early starts and, again, just based on the setup that the Reds have. I think they are much more likely to do what they did with Reaver San Martin, using him as a bulk reliever in, in Los Angeles last week and make some tweaks along the way to, to other guys. Vladimir Gutierrez doesn't need to have a regular spot in the rotation. They can uh, accommodate the veterans and their top prospects by just shifting a couple of of more like swingmen type guys into different roles. So really no worries for me uh, with usage as it pertains to Nick Lodolo. Uh, the other pitcher that made a debut, a less hyped prospect, Bryce Elder, had good numbers in the minor leagues as he kind of did research and tried to figure out who Bryce Elder actually was. Uh, two starts since debuting last Tuesday has gone 10 total innings, 7 Ks, 5 walks, a couple home runs allowed. Atlanta's sticking with a six-man rotation for now, Al, but... I still think Spencer Strider is part of the answer here, just based on the way they've continued to stretch him out as a reliever. As for Bryce Elder, it's a true four-pitch arsenal. Four pitches all above a 20% usage. There are very few guys in the game 
that mix up their pitches that way. He's got a cutter, a changeup, a sinker, and a slider. Not a lot of velo. So when I see a guy like this, I see almost a crafty veteran profile, which is kind of funny with a guy named Elder. But <laughs> just this is not what a young pitcher tends to look like in the current baseball landscape. You know, you're right. Uh, he does have that kind of profile. And uh, you mentioned the, the four different pitches that he used pretty much equally. But really only the changeup was getting a lot of swing and miss out of those four uh, in those those couple of starts for Elder. So I agree with you. I'm much more interested in trying to roster uh, Strider. And he's actually still out there in a lot of the uh, the 15-team leagues, much less the, the shallower ones. So I think that that's definitely the takeaway here. Elder may have some appeal in the in the shorter run, but yeah, yeah I'm not uh, certainly not breaking the bank to uh, to Adam. I think Elder's appeal is limited mostly to NL only leagues. Uh, I do like where he was locating. His cutter was like outside uh, outside to righties. Changeup was down in the zone. Slider was down and away to righties, and the sinker generally low where you want it to be as well. So I think he can offset some of the lack of velocity by locating well but I think as you mentioned with really one pitch getting swings and misses it's going to be a a bumpy ride for Bryce Elder with that approach right it's going to be a very contact heavy profile might be the kind of guy that can give us a a decent ERA and probably a, a whip that's very dependent upon the defense behind him so tread carefully if you're thinking about Bryce Elder in a mixed league scenario. Uh, one other news-related item to a pitcher that debuted last week, Tommy Romero of the Rays optioned back to AAA Durham over the weekend. So if you were holding him in a deeper redraft league, you can probably cut him loose at this point and reevaluate him a bit later this season once he gets another shot at some big league innings. I want to spend some time today, Al, focusing on O-swing percentage for hitters, right? So we're looking at the rate at which players swing at pitches outside the strike zone. And I think as we look at small samples, we're talking still three series worth of games as we move through the second week of the season. It's so strange starting end of a week and having everything like twisted up like this. It'd be so nice if everything started on a Monday. You start looking at players that are chasing pitches outside the zone, and I think you can find pretty quickly some guys that need to make adjustments and players that might be more susceptible to losing playing time outright depending on you know how committed their current organization is to making them everyday guys. And as somebody who really liked Kevin Smith's opportunity with the trade to Oakland, and still, I mean, I, I like him in general this season, I've had a really difficult time. I've talked about it on a few shows now. I've had a really difficult time holding on to him in these early weeks of the season. He's buried in the bottom third of the lineup right now for the A's. I don't think he had a hit in the first week. He bounced back, had a couple knocks last week, and he actually leads rookie hitters in O-swing percentage at 45.6%. That is not a place you want to be. That is uh, the wrong end of the leaderboard, just to be clear on that. And, you know, it it could just be a slump. It could just be a guy pressing to say, I got to earn this playing time. I got to secure this role, right? we, We see that happen because with Kevin Smith, there weren't many opportunities in Toronto. He only played 18 games at the big league level last year. It was a pretty crowded infield, so those opportunities were just so difficult to come by. Is something like this the right approach to take? Looking at O-swing percentages, some of the process-related stats to determine how to drop a player 
early on, especially in redraft leagues, because we're always excited about young players. It's always fun to think about being right about a player like Kevin Smith, who shows power and speed in the minor leagues, gets a pat the playing time. But sometimes it takes a few months or even a season for a player to adjust to big league pitching and produce for us. Well, I think you got to look at the the whole picture, and uh, I, I'm guessing you're you're looking at these O swing uh, metrics on Fangraphs. That's where I, I get them from, and it's part of a whole range of uh, what they call plate discipline metrics. So it, it's always it, it's unfortunately it's not very elegant or even easy to explain, but you do have to look at this in the fuller context of um, okay, they're they're chasing pitches a lot, but are they just being aggressive in general? Are they also swinging a lot of pitches in the zone? What are their contact rates? In and out of the zone. So if you look at, at Kevin Smith, it's yeah, the picture's pretty bad. I mean, the O contact rate, 57.1%. But even more disturbing to me is that he's only making contact on three out of four pitches in the zone, where you'd like to see that number pretty close to 90%. And yeah, we are talking about small samples, but when you see a, a stat that's that far from from the norm or from the, the good side of the norm, uh, and you're talking about a player like Kevin Smith who wasn't that widely rostered, especially maybe a week or two out of opening day, I think it's pretty easy to ditch him. Now, if you go a little bit further down the rankings, but not too far down, you got Bobby Witt Jr. And that, to me, that's a much more difficult call because if you drop Bobby Witt, almost certainly somebody's going to pick him up. And the he is chasing a lot of pitches out of the zone, but he's also making contact on 73% of them, which is a really, a really high rate on out of zone pitches. So I think you can, especially with the fact that you're, you're likely to lose Bobby Witt. If you, if you cut him, you can kind of live with that. Cause it's like, okay, maybe there's, there's an overly aggressive approach here, but he's, he's being pretty aggressive all the way around and, and making a lot of contact. So, uh, you know, I think that the, the hits will eventually come for Witt. Yeah, I think the zone contact comparison is really important. I mean, you can just go over to fan graphs and hit the plate discipline tab when you're looking at hitter leaderboards, check the box for rookies, hit the submit button, and there you go. You're off. You've got the the full view of, of the things that we're, we're looking at here. Um, I, I would say like Kevin Smith and Seth Beer are kind of in the same area where they're swinging missing a lot outside the zone and inside the zone, and that's a problem. I think Wit. Wit is exactly why you have bench spots in your league because what it took to get him, we talked a lot about it back during draft season, it was always an elevated price. And it may be worth every ounce of what you paid to get him by the time the season is over. That's still possible. This is not the Bobby Witt Jr.'s a failure speech. This is Major League Baseball is very hard. And even the best prospects take time often to adjust in some way. And I would be more encouraged by seeing that slightly elevated zone contact percentage for Wit compared to the other names we're talking about here in Beer and Smith. And we also know there is a considerable difference between how the Royals view Wit and how the D-backs view Beer and how the A's view Smith. Those other organizations like those players and believe in those players, but they don't have that same, this is a franchise player sort of feel to them. And I think that also carries a lot of weight as you eventually make a decision about a possible demotion. Also, I think we're a little early for that in all three of these cases because for Oakland and Arizona, the immediate question is, well, who would you play instead? Oakland especially, I don't see obvious candidates ready to take on that extra playing time for Kevin Smith. 
but we as fantasy players don't have to keep him while he figures this out. So I think that's the important thing. In a 12-team league, especially if you haven't dropped him, I think you can go ahead and drop him. I think I'm going to go ahead and let him go in 15-team leagues if we don't see significant improvement here in these next few games. And that's that's where we live. We live in the, the granular sort of world as we move through the first month of the season. Um, other names on this list... Kiebert Ruiz comes in a little high at 42.4%. He's a great example, though, of a player that just swings a lot. He's got an 80% swing rate overall. Uh, he's made contact in the zone 95.5% of the time. If you haven't looked at his numbers in the minor leagues before, he's an unusual player. It's similar to, kind of similar to a Williams Astadio. Maybe not quite as extreme in terms of the low K rate, but a low K rate for the, the power that he started to show in the upper levels of the minor leagues. It's still only an 11.4% strikeout rate for Ruiz. Uh, he's played eight games so far this season. Still looking for his first homer. He's got a couple RBIs, a couple runs, only hitting 229. I think the the difficult decision with Ruiz will be in single catcher leagues. How long do you wait for a guy like this to start producing for you if you're in a 10-team league that uses one catcher? Right, if you're in a 12-team league that uses two catchers or anything deeper, he's still playing enough and still has enough core skills where you're not even really thinking about making an adjustment just yet. Yeah, I, you just have to ask yourself, well, what are the alternatives and what's the upside? And in the case of catcher, not a lot of viable alternatives in one-catcher leagues on waivers and uh, still tons of upside. And you know, like you pointed out, Ruiz is just generally a very aggressive hitter sometimes. A hitter can just make that work for them. And, uh, you know, it's very encouraging that he is making a lot of contact on pitches both in and out of the zone. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't I see any reason to drop Ruiz in, in any sort of format. And just to, again, make a, a, a counter comparison here uh, a little further down this leaderboard, Bryson Stott, somebody who's being very aggressive on pitches out of the zone but really patient on pitches in the zone. That's not a combination that you want to see. And he's got a 71% contact rate when he does swing in the zone. So that that's a pretty abysmal profile. And the Phillies do have alternatives in the infield. So I, I, you know, I think Stott is somebody that you could consider dropping. I think this is just a, a fun exercise that you can do really at, at any point and, and just say like, whoa, hey, this, this, is, this is what's going on underlying. These are guys trying to figure it out. This is what trying to figure it out looks like with, with numbers. And you can just see all sorts of different wrinkles that a hitter might have that, uh, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to swing more just to try and, and get my pitch in the zone and, and not end up in bad counts. Like That could be an approach that you see uh, hitters employing at this point as well. Uh, interesting, there's a few other names above 40%, by the way. C.J. Abrams up over 40% with that O-swing percentage. Christian Pache and Jeremy Pena, I believe, sitting there as well. Actually, Pena just under 40% after Monday's games. I wanted to see where Julio Rodriguez was because it's been a, a quiet start for him relative to how how his ADP jumped at the end of draft season coming off of a fantastic spring. A bit lower than a lot of the other players on this list. 35.2% for the O-swing percentage, not really alarming the zone contact rate is a little bit low for Rodriguez, though, so that's an area where I, I'm, I'm keeping a close eye on that in the next couple of weeks. But I would say if you drafted Rodriguez, you know, inflated late spring price or early spring at a very fair price, whenever you drafted him, he's more like Wit. I will continue to put him in the same category as Wit, where, yes, it is possible that he gets demoted. It is more likely that they ease back on playing time first before doing that. 
And this is the type of player you would be more inclined to put on your bench than to actually cut loose, even in a more shallow mixed league setting. Yeah, no, I think that absolutely holds. You got to be patient with these hitters that, uh, you know, like I was saying with with uh, Bobby Witt and with uh, Caber Ruiz, you just need to give them at least a couple more weeks to see uh, if they can make some progress. It's, and, and remind yourself that we're still working with a really small sample. Essentially, it's been a bad week for these hitters that mm. we're saying have a, a very unpromising profile. It's just, you know, a bad week plus. On the other end, some other notables, though, that have looked good in terms of not chasing pitches outside the zone. Spencer Torkelson down at 20.7%. It's actually a little bit below where Stephen Kwan is in that metric. And we're seeing Spencer Torkelson making a lot of contact in the zone. So that's uh, early signs of him maybe being as good of a hitter as advertised. We'll see how it holds up, of course, over over more time. Uh, Josh Lowe is in here with a, a low... Zone contact percentage uh, down at 73.6%, but an O swing of 22.3%. So not chasing bad pitches. It sort of makes sense to me as, as you look at Josh Lowe. Batting average sometimes was a bit of a, a light category for him in the minors. He's always walked good OBPs consistently, and I think that's the profile that you'd expect to see for a player like that. Uh, the sleeper on this list, he came up on the waiver pod on Friday, is Cooper Hummel. He's got a really nice... Really nice number here, 15.9% on the O-swing percentage, playing on the small side of the platoon, making a lot of contact inside the zone, kind of similar to Seiya Suzuki in, in that regard. right? We've seen an excellent approach from Suzuki during his brief time in the big leagues. Not a surprise since he's a pro who came over after several years in Japan. But for a guy like Cooper Hummel, who really I don't think many people were talking about at all, even in NL-only leagues back during draft season, He's the kind of guy that could sneak onto your roster in a, a deeper league, whether it's Keeper League, Dynasty League, Redraft, and end up having a surprising amount of value given where he's playing and given the quality of the at-bats that he's taking. Like This, this to me, is the kind of thing that you'd say, hmm, I wonder if, the, if Arizona wants to see what happens with more exposure, possibly playing also against righties instead of working mostly on the small side of the platoon. Yeah, and you've brought him up on a couple of other episodes. I had been skeptical in the the even earlier part of the season, but yeah, it's a, shaping up to be a pretty intriguing profile so far. And maybe also it's just the slim, similarity in names that's taking me there. But it, looking at the age and the and the profile, sort of reminds me a little bit of Garrett Cooper, and also in terms of the role that that Hummel could play. And uh, Cooper was somebody that I was targeting as uh, like a bench bat and. Uh, slightly deeper formats and I think uh, Hummel just even if he's not quite there yet I think just to speculate uh, Hummel could could fill a bench spot uh, in those formats as well let's move on to some trending players for that we're just looking for players that are being added on various platforms I saw Jose Siri uh, ticking up a few places he was actually the position player that fetched the largest free agent bid in my big NFBC auction this weekend, and I was a bit puzzled when I saw it. I, I just, I, he wasn't on my radar at all, and I started digging into the profile a little bit more and said, did I, did I miss something, or is this just a case where someone else is overzealous? And maybe it's a little bit of both. We've only seen Jose Siri in the big leagues for 28 regular season games, including last season and early this season. He's a 299, 356, 567 hitter in that very limited sample. 32.9% K rate, 
4.1% walk rate. It's got five homers and four steals. So there's some power, there's some speed. Definitely a combo that we can get excited about. Do the results intrigue you despite these underlying plate skills questions? And just for some context, got a 29.2% O-swing percentage since we were just talking about that. Kind of near the middle of the pack, really. Not at the good end with guys like Suzuki and Hummel, but not at the bad end with guys like Kevin Smith and, and Seth Beer in the little bit that he's played this year. Yeah, well, series at the the point where most of those other players are going to regress towards. I mean, that's a pretty normal chase rate, maybe just slightly on the the low side, which is which is the side you'd like to be on. So you know, you mentioned those overall stats since getting called up by the Astros last year, but those indicators have been a little better taking a small sample and chopping it up into a smaller part. Uh, the portion that he's played this season, the strikeout rate is down, the walk rate is up, as you would expect, with a pretty good chase rate. And there is a power-speed potential combination with Siri that I find really intriguing. So for me, the biggest question is just, you know, can he rest playing time from Chaz McCormick? And I am skeptical that he can. So for me, he is more of a, a, a speculative ad in deeper leagues so that you're prepared if, if McCormick does fall out of favor there. But as of right now, I'm not, I'm not that optimistic about the playing time for Siri. I have that skepticism as well and yet when I look at this profile with the, the elevated K rates and the upper levels of the minor leagues and you know the power speed I wonder if this is maybe another trip down the path that we saw Adelis Garcia go down last year I mean I, th I think McCormick to me is a more balanced player than Siri and I can understand looking at him and saying this is the safer profile this is the guy that I would if I had to bet my job as scouting director or assistant GM or whatever on, on one player to be a consistently good big leaguer, I understand exactly why Chaz McCormick would be that player. But, I mean, McCormick strikes out also. We've seen it in a larger sample from him. I don't know if the tools pop quite as much. So it's kind of a question, do you want stability or do you want ceiling? And I think Part of why whoever that person was that bid on Siri in that big league I'm in did it is because if it goes right, it's going to go right in a way that really helps us as fantasy players. Like the, the real life flaws of Jose Siri are easy to see, but if he does come away with that job, like it's, it's close enough where it could break that way. I think the hard thing is it's easy to fall in love with this power speed combo and if the K rate just shoots up for a couple of weeks, the playing time does dry up, as you said. So I'm, I guess what I'm saying in, in a very meandering sort of way is I am intrigued by these results. And I'm not as convinced as I was previously that McCormick or the, the more skill-stable option is necessarily going to come away with the bulk of the playing time in center field for, or the, for the Astros. So... Cautiously optimistic is the grade that I'm putting on Jose Siri at this point. It makes me sad. I didn't really need part of the reason it was on my radar in that league anyway. I didn't need an outfielder. It would have been nice to have a guy like that on the bench, maybe, but I also just wasn't really looking for any outfield help at the time. So probably on my radar more this weekend in leagues where he is still available. I want to throw a question your way that I've asked a few people about. Owen Miller, is he actually good? Because when I started to boil it down on rates and barrels on Monday, I was thinking about Miller versus all the infielders that people might have been cutting 
uh, to go get him. And I just don't know if there's that much of an upgrade there. So when you've looked at, at Miller's you know, past profile as a minor league player, what he's done uh, in the brief time in the big leagues this year and after a call-up last year, where do you fall on him? What type of player do you think Owen Miller is going to be for us going forward? Uh, well, before I answer that question, I just want to say that in fab bidding this past weekend, Miller for me was like a fourth level contingent bid. So that I think that, that partially answers the question that I, I think there's upside here, but I'm not convinced of it. I'm not. I think maybe I think the odds are that that he doesn't achieve uh, anywhere close to that upside. Uh, but you know, he wasn't that mix for me and I didn't, you know, need somebody at first base or second base. So this was just, you know, to add a, a hitter that I thought could have some value. And I had him, for example, you're talking about pursuing an outfielder. I, I wound up with Oscar Mercado in two week, uh, two leagues this week uh, because I, you know, I thought that there was more of a, a chance that he could fulfill some power upside as compared to Owen Miller. Uh, so, you know, that said, I mean, He's striking out at a 15% rate so far in this really small sample. And that's really at odds with uh, what he did both with Cleveland last year and what he did uh, when he was in AAA. So yeah, I'm, I'm skeptical there, but I think that he's hitting for, for power, uh, you know, in terms of exit velocity and, and barrels. And, um, you know, I think that might be for real. Uh, I think he could be like a, you know, 15 to 20 homer hitter uh, with, you know, not uh, like a decent average, uh, you know, 250, 260. But maybe he could be something more if uh, if he continues to make good contact. Yeah, I, I just, I see, I don't I see more of a player that you would have on and off your roster again in, in the underlying profile. Not a bad player whatsoever, but just not a guy that you're necessarily going to have week over week over week starting for you. It'll be nice having first and second base eligibility eventually. I think that's a possibility. Uh, with Josh Naylor back, I think Miller ends up playing first base mostly against lefties and then moves over to second base when the Guardians are facing a righty. Uh, but I'm, I, I just, I, I think you can find this profile. This was this was the broader point that I, I tried to make previously. And if you didn't listen to Rates and Barrels, it's fine. I think the... The profile that Owen Miller has can be found almost every week on the wire, and it doesn't usually cost as much as it costs to get Owen Miller coming off of a great week. You can speculate on other players who end up, because of an injury, going from a partial share of playing time to a full share of playing time, and if you can time it out where that player didn't hit two home runs that week or didn't steal two bases that week, that player can be snuck onto your roster for 1% to 2% of your budget or with a simple ad when no one else is paying attention. So I guess that's that's part of the issue with me is that I just don't, I don't know if there's anything that makes him clearly stand out. That's what I want to see over time. So I am going to follow the lead of the person that went in heavily on Jose Siri, try to quietly get Jose Siri in some leagues and make up some ground where I didn't get Owen Miller this past weekend. A couple of trending pitchers I wanted to get to. Grayson Rodriguez uh, pushing up to 46% rostered in CBS leagues. I think there's this assumption, especially with the John Means injury, that the Orioles are going to give Grayson Rodriguez innings at the big league level sooner rather than later. He's made a couple of appearances at AAA so far this season, and it's gone well. Just nine innings over those, those two starts as they continue to bring him along carefully. 
uh, but tons of Ks, a 48.4% K rate, 3.2% walk rate in that very limited window. I just don't think this is a guy that has much left to prove in the minors. Even if it's going to be an adjustment period for him at the big league level, why not bring him up? Maybe in the case of the Orioles, they're waiting for Adley Rutschman to get healthy and they bring them up together. I guess they could do that for, for service time purposes, but I see so much mixing and matching with roles right now on this Baltimore staff. I don't think they'd have any problem accommodating whatever workload restrictions they have in mind for Grayson Rodriguez, which I guess just leads to another sort of question. How interested are you in stashing him in your redraft leagues where he's available with the idea that you may not often have him throwing more than four or five innings at a time? Well, I think if we're interested in Spencer Strider and kind of hanging back with whatever innings he, he produces for the next several weeks. Uh, I think yet yeah, you absolutely could be interested in Grayson Rodriguez. Rodriguez. Um, uh, certainly uh, with each passing week, it's going to be more costly and fab. So I think now is the time to do it. And I think it's good that you're bringing this up DVR because, you know, last week, he, last weekend, he wasn't really on my radar because I was very interested in Mackenzie Gore and also Andrew Haney, by the way, <laughs> wound up going for more than Gore did in my TGFBI uh, or actually my Nerf League. But uh, in any event, gave back to prospects here. Yeah, I think now's the time to to put that bid on Rodriguez while it's still probably um, probably reasonable in terms of your budget. Uh, because he's going to give you those innings eventually, and it's going to be worth stashing him and using that spot to to keep him well while you're waiting for him. Yeah, I think the quality of those innings could be really high. I think the Orioles are also the kind of team that might throw an opener in front of them. They they might just say, "Yeah, it's fine. You can we'll let you get wins. We're going to throw someone else out there for an inning or two, and then you're going to go four or five. So. I think there are a few ways it can work, and obviously we're talking about a very talented guy who also gets to reap the benefits of a ballpark with those new dimensions too. So even more excited about Grayson Rodriguez than I already was a year ago with those changes. Uh, Max Meyer in Miami, now up to 27% rostered on CBS. I know he's dealing with, a, I think, a calf injury, but he's still listed as the starter for Tuesday at AAA Jacksonville. It's really just a matter of a spot opening up for Max Meyer, I have not been stashing him in mixed leagues. I think he still fits a little more as an NL-only stash for me at the time being. But uh, you mentioned on Friday's episode that with so many of the top prospects in the game opening the year on big league rosters and having already been drafted, there might not be that huge group of players that comes up in May. Usually it's it's early to mid-May when we have the Fabapalooza. I think it might be a little more on the pitching side. It might be someone like Meyer who actually commands large bids and Rodriguez too in leagues where he's you know not eligible to be picked up yet once those guys get opportunities because I think there are plenty of teams as I look at the standings of my leagues early that are going to chase pitching they have bad ratios right now they've lost a couple guys to injuries and they're going to want to go all in on the possibility of a young pitcher coming up and having success you know similar to Shane McClanahan and Alec Manoa uh, some of the young players that came up right away and, and made a big impact for us. Yeah, I think that uh, that is probably going to happen. And it's kind of interesting because just a couple weeks ago, we were talking about Edward Cabrera and how he's been sidelined with the biceps injury. And I didn't really view Meyer as being that far behind him. But now I I think that as long as you know he's not out with the calf injury, uh, it, it doesn't miss a start or more than that. He really has an opportunity to, to leapfrog Cabrera in terms of reaching the majors first and and just having 
more perceived an actual value in a fantasy league. So yeah, I think think you can now put him in the same category as Rodriguez as somebody who uh, it would it would be worth stashing him now. Uh, and eventually I think it'll be very, very hard to win him in a fab bid. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Let's move on to our level roundup. We take a look at a different level each week, and we're still really letting things marinate, of course, throughout the minor leagues right now. We're going to take a look at some bats and arms of interest at the high A level, starting with some bats. Novi Marte, another great prospect in the Mariners system, off to a nice start at high A. A nice slash line, 286, 429, 500, couple of home runs so far. Only eight games, of course, but I think Marte is one of those players that we're going to see spend probably half a season at high A and half a season at double A if things go well in the first half. Um, But I wanted to bring him up just because I like looking for hitters that are projected to unlock more power. I love to see at the high A and double A levels when we get a ground ball rate that's dropping. I want those guys who are supposed to be hitting for more power to start doing that on the way to the big leagues. That gives me so much more confidence in that game power being there when they show up, right? Kind of the the opposite of, of a Cabrian Hayes profile, which, you know, I, I, I like Cabrian Hayes. I think he's going to be a good big league player, a very good big league player for a long time. But when we can start to see that improvement as players move up, I think that means we, we can get more power sooner upon arrival. Yep. Yeah. A couple homers already for Marte in high A. And he was a player, really, he was the player Keith Law singled out when I did the Q&A with him just a little bit before opening day and asked him, well, which prospect are you really excited about for 2023? And sort of balked at the question, understandably so, because he said, like, you know, I don't even know what I'm doing two days from now. But, uh, you know, then he went on to say, you know, Marte's the the one that he's really excited about for next year. So, yeah, we, we may not be that far away. The timetable that you were just laying out with him spending maybe half the season this year in double A, that would track with him getting to Seattle sometime next year and uh, off to a great start so far this year. I think that sort of, of level promotion could also happen with Marco Luciano, just like Mark said. He's 20 years old, could see the second half at double A if it goes well for him, off to a decent start at Haya Eugene. I'm keeping a really close eye on the plate skills for Luciano. We saw him jump up to a 37.2% K rate in just 36 games at the high A level last season. Very early improvement there, down at 25% here in these first couple of weeks is a step back in the right direction. Like Marte, this is a special player, a guy that probably stays hopefully on the left side of the infield, even if he's not a shortstop long term. I think Marco Luciano is one of those bats that Giants fans and keeper and dynasty managers are really excited about. Yeah, the only thing that we got to really pay attention to with with a little bit of concern here is the strikeout rate because he did play 36 games at high A last year and struck out 37.2% of the time there after striking out only 22.1% of the time uh, in Class A uh, earlier in 2021. So see that that rate is down early, but again, it is very, very early with not a lot of plate appearances to speak of. Uh, So I think if we see that rate come down, then... You know, maybe Luciano, like you said, maybe he moves aggressively too. Robert Hassel, outfielder in the Padres system, showed off a ton of speed at low A last season and good plate skills, also lowering his K rate after where he finished last season at high A. It was 28.7% in a little bit of time he spent there a year ago, down at 18.4%. So already putting those skills kind of back into the, the lower level range that we saw in he is running a ton again. I know there have been more changes in the minor leagues that have boosted up stolen bases, but I think 
we're looking at Robert Hassel long-term as someone that's going to help us quite a bit in that category. Yeah, seven stolen bases and seven tries already. Uh, you know, I, I, I want to get excited when I see players who put up just you know, ridiculous numbers like that. Think about what they could do in the major leagues. Uh, but sometimes there's really a question about, well, are they really going to be able to hit for enough power to get the opportunity to, to, to get on base and be productive offensively and have those steal opportunities so far, it looks like, like hassle will. So I'm really interested to see how that plays out as he, he moves up the ladder, but already two home runs in, in his first nine games so far this season. So really, really encouraging for hassle. And the last player on the bat side of today's conversation, Henry Davis went 1-1, of course, to the Pirates, striking out less, returning to high A. Only played eight games last season after being drafted. So it, you know we didn't really get much of a look at him a season ago. I think the hardest thing for me with Davis is something that I struggle with with pretty much all catching prospects is trying to get a loose timetable. When I'm drafting prospects, I try to approximate how long I'm going to have to wait to see that player Davis, as far as his bat goes, very polished as a hitter. I think it comes down more to how they like his game calling and his defense. I think the overall thoughts are that he will stay behind the plate. But I don't have a good feel for whether we're going to see Davis in Pittsburgh two years from now or if it's going to take three plus because of, of those those things that they want to see. Yeah, now I've got the same concerns too. But the way that he's hit so far, I don't think two years is inconceivable. Uh, they started him off at high A last year. Like you said, just played a handful of games there and uh, a handful again this year uh, starting at that level and uh, has shown some power, um, strikeout rate a little bit on the high side, but some plate discipline. So for, for his first few games uh, as a professional, really, really encouraging. I think uh, you know maybe we could see him in Pittsburgh uh, by, by 2024. Let's talk about a few pitchers of interest. There's a story I want to read on The Athletic. I had this queued up. I didn't get a chance to read it before this episode. But Kyle Harrison, who is the first-round pick of the Giants out of high school in 2020, a left-handed pitcher, flying up prospect rankings. He's off to an excellent start at high A this season. Uh, nine innings, scoreless so far, 16 Ks. Yep, that'll that'll work. Strike out half the batters you face. Uh, one of those guys that I think you know, it, it's, it's difficult to bet on pitching prospects out of high school. This looks like a case where if you did it, you are going to be rewarded in a very big way based on what he's been able to do uh, early on here in his professional career. Yeah, really exciting. Uh, probably not somebody that you could get at this point in the Dynasty League and also somebody who's not close enough to be thinking about redraft, but uh, definitely somebody to be watching as he progresses because uh, you know, to wind up in San Francisco too of all places, he could really be a force within a couple of years. Yeah, just very limited looks too. I think Keith Law talks about this a lot on the Athletic Baseball show. The The risk with a high school pitcher, especially in the first round, is off the charts. Historically, it's not a good decision to do that in the 2020 season when looks were few and far between on many of those players as seasons were canceled as the COVID pandemic started. 
I took a ton of risk. So Andrew Baggerly's got a great story about that. If you want to read more about Kyle Harrison, if he happens to be available in your keeper league, I think this is a, an arm absolutely worth going after. One probably more likely available arm in some keeper leagues, at least, is Owen White. And I think he gets a little bit overshadowed in the Rangers system because Jack Leiter, of course, is the, the name people are most familiar with. They have other pitching prospects like Cole Wynn who are making their way up the ranks as well. Owen White, I, I didn't realize this, but he he was hurt. So they signed him they signed him to an overslot deal in the second round after drafting him in 2018. He had Tommy John surgery and didn't pitch in 2019. No minor league games because of the pandemic in 2020. So he finally came back in May of last year and he broke his hand. This this is just the ridiculous bad run of not being able to see what he can do. He started at high A this year. He's not going to be there for long. It's only been eight innings so far. 36.7% K rate in those starts. Barely walking anybody. Had a really good run in the fall league last year and, and I think got on the prospect map again. I think we're talking about a guy that could maybe pitch at four levels this year. It's hard to do, but I think the perfect storm is happening where you have this guy who's probably too old for this first assignment, has great stuff, has already shown it in the fall league, and is in an organization where there will probably be multiple opportunities in the rotation throughout the summer. So if you told me Owen White's going to spend a little bit of time at high A, a little bit of time at double A, a little bit of time at triple A, and we're going to see him in August of this year, you know, workload permitting with the Rangers, I think that I could get on board with that. Yeah, when you first said that, I thought, yeah, that's pretty aggressive. I don't know, but yet he'll by by August he'll be twenty three. So I, I suppose it's not unthinkable. And yeah, I mean, he absolutely dominated Class A in eight starts last year. Uh, first two starts this year, very very good at High A. So yeah, I could certainly see a promotion to Double A. Uh, you know, maybe maybe even as soon as May. And then, yeah, then you're putting him pretty close to the doorstep of Arlington. Uh, it's pretty, pretty exciting. But I think, yeah, that's we're looking at a, a possible late addition for your fantasy home stretch is the the best case scenario for for redraft leagues. All right, so I've got one more name for everybody for this week, and you've probably seen or heard his name before because it's an unusual path to to baseball in general. Adam Macko is a left handed prospect in the Mariner system. He was born in Slovakia, spent several years in Ireland, and actually eventually moved to Canada where he finished high school. I first heard about him on actually on Keith's podcast. Keith Law had him on the show about a year or so ago now at least. And just hearing that story, like even just becoming becoming interested in baseball growing up in, in places like Slovakia and Ireland Seems like a, a long shot to begin with. And he's off to a fantastic start. Pitching at high A so far this year. This is a case where age to level would matter a lot less to me. And in playing, you know, by the time you get to high school, if you're in Canada, you're playing good organized baseball. But still, relative to a lot of other prospects, there's still probably more opportunity for growth for Adam Mako uh, than there might be for the typical 21-year-old, which is not to say that all 21-year-olds can get better. But this is where, even if you were struggling right now, I would still be very intrigued by this profile. Yeah, no, very intriguing. Like you said, a, a great story. And currently, by the way, at high A, 
has the second most strikeouts of any pitcher across the the three high A leagues. And the only one who's higher is uh, a minor leaguer I've never heard of, a Braves pitcher named Tanner Gordon, who's 24 years old, but has 20 strikeouts and no walks so far this year. So also be watching what he does in his next few starts, because even though he's really old for the level, uh, that that's pretty intriguing. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on uh, on Tanner Gordon being just a bonus name. Like, Ooh, what's going on with that guy? Maybe maybe it's more of a relief profile, but I'll uh, I'll definitely want to take more of a deep dive there once we get the opportunity to do so. That's going to do it for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. If you want to check out some of the stories that we talked about, want to check out Keith Law's write ups on these players. He had a ton of those team by team organizational reports that went up a couple months ago. They're a great reference if you haven't had a chance to read those. Theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast. Oh, and you also get all of the fantasy stuff we do, including Al's waiver wire article each and every week. We get updated rankings throughout the season, everything you could really possibly want, plus all course all the real baseball coverage and coverage of other sports we've got the nba playoffs right now lots of other stuff going on that you can get excited about the athletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast gets you that deal one dollar a month for the first six months on twitter you can find al at al milk your bb you can find me at Derek van riper the athletic fantasy baseball podcast returns on wednesday 